Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've conducted nearly 385 of them now, and if this is new to you, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in about four or five different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a donate button on every page of the site and a donate page that explains in greater detail why we raise donations. My guest today is Shanti Mai. I often say this when I'm starting out interviews, but I really feel it today. I, I really enjoyed preparing for this interview. Um, Shanti Mai has, oh. has really lived... a exemplary life, um, spiritually speaking, and um, has imbibed or d uncovered a lot of wisdom within herself, and it's very evident in reading her book, which is called In Our Hearts We Know, and um, listening to her online audios. In fact, I had a funny experience, Shantimaya, I was listening to a bunch of your audios, and, and you you do them most of them out in nature uh, near some cliff and 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 you were saying <laughs> right. yeah and you were saying I'm here today with Davy sitting near the cliff and I, I kind of was <laughs> I was sort of assuming that Davy was like a, a human being who was like your personal assistant or doing the recording or something like that and then at one point after I'd listened to a number of these you said oh Davy's run off to chase a wild pig. <laughs> so, so I realized that Davy was a dog. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I can see the confusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, let me read your bio a little bit here. Shandi Mai has been what she calls mirroring. We'll, we'll talk about what that means for well over two decades. She was born in the U.S., lived in lives in France and India mostly, has traveled the world to remind those who are remembering, who wonder and are drawn by their heart to the ancient wisdom of self-realization. She had the rare and unusual opportunity to sequester herself for many years in India at the feet of her master. There she learned, unlearned, and experienced directly her master's directives. In that awe-inspiring atmosphere, her work had its inception and has gone full throttle ever since. She carries, she carries the Satya lineage to the world and does not consider herself a Hindu. Yet, she grew in, uh, in awareness, love, and wisdom in the rich and fertile furrows of India's venerable spiritual heritage. I usually don't ask people's questions until later on, but somebody sent in a question that perfectly uh, relates to what I just read, and I'll ask it of you. Um, this is a fellow named K, okay. a person named K.P. from Mumbai. Uh, he or she asked, can Shanti Mai clarify what exactly is a lineage? Is it just some formal outward institution, such as I went to Harvard, or guru that we follow, or are there some subtle energy connections between people in a lineage? Do they see the world differently from people not in that lineage? Also, can a person belong to two or three lineages, or does it strictly imply only following one guru? <clears throat> Who decides what lineage a person belongs to, and is every lineage open to all? So there's a good question to start with. Well, that's five questions. Yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> well, but uh, okay. So let's uh, let's approach that. I can only speak about my experience. I cannot say that this is a rule for 
all lineages and the way they are with their students or disciples. So I can only speak about my uh, own experience. And uh, my experience with my guru and the lineage. Lineage means uh, there's a line of masters that have emerged from, let's say, well, okay, you have a, a guru and then he has a, a disciple who is prepared to to realize or whatever depth of spirituality he may uh, discover or acquire. And uh, he may or she may carry on the lineage. So that's a lineage. I mean, it's like a family. You know, I have a grandmother. I have a great grandmother. I have, I am a great grandmother myself. My daughter's a grandmother. So that's a lineage. And uh, yeah, so our lineage is open to all. I don't know. We honor, or I honor, uh, my master, and that's my lineage. And I, I learned, and as it said, I learned and unlearned a great deal from him. But that's all I can really say. I cannot speak for other lineages or how people enter those stories or, or give their lives to that uh, spirituality through a teacher. I have one and one guru only, but. I'm not a person to say what other people should do in that way. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, one, one part of his question was, is there some kind of subtle energy connection between people in a lineage? So, there is. Yeah. Absolutely there is. Absolutely. At least that's my experience. I don't know for other people whether the master sees something like the story of Hoi Neng, you know, um, he went to a master, he was totally enlightened, and uh, the master sent him to the kitchen to do menial work for 13 years. But yeah, there is something that passes between them, but it's not really that it passes between them, it's a, that it wakes up in you. It's like, it's like the wick of a candle. You lean the fire into the candle, and the fire is always in the wick. Is that not true? Mm -hmm. The possibility for the fire is always in the wick. So the fire comes like that. And because it's dry and capable, uh, it, it ignites. And uh, I would say that that's a, an analogy of the subtle energies that move between master and disciple. Mm. I have a friend, um, he told me this in a private conversation, so I guess I won't reveal his name, but he, he has a long and dedicated spiritual practice. and. Um, he eventually he he recently in recent years became good friends with Adyashanti and Adyashanti eventually I think last summer kind of did this little official investiture ceremony where he made him kind of part of his lineage or part of his group and, and my friend said that he was teaching not long thereafter and all of a sudden he got the uncanny feeling that Adyashanti was actually standing behind him and it was so vivid that he turned around to look to see if Adi was standing there, you know, and um, and of course he wasn't in the flesh, but it, it almost Im implied in his experience, and he does tend to have subtle experience, that there's some kind of energetic connection that gets established. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, for sure. I've had that experience myself. I'm, I'm uh, where I have felt my guru, not, I felt my face, his face, mm. huh? so, but, uh, I also hesitate to tell these kind of experiences because I don't, I don't know that I'm setting a uh, an ex, uh, an expectation for others to have that kind of an experience. Well, why am I not having that? Yeah. Am I not? Where you know you know where it goes. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's a good yeah. point to make in general. I mean, you can get envious of other people's experiences, of all sorts of experiences, and it's good to remember that your experiences are yours and theirs are theirs, and the, t- the twain may not meet. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you know, some people, when they have some satori, they, you know, it's like fireworks. And in Zen, there's a statement, maybe you heard this on my uh, on my transmission, where the master walks through a forest and he doesn't realize he's wet until the other side. I like that very much. This kind of diversity in realization is really, I think it's really important to people. Yeah, I like that too. And I've used that story also in, in interviews. Like if you're kind of walking in a drizzle and it's not, doesn't even seem to be raining, but you end up just as wet as if it were a downpour, you know? That's right. That's beautiful, huh? Yeah. Then there's the whole thing about people sort of claiming that they're in a lineage. I mean, you see a lot of people with pictures of Ramana Maharshi behind them, and then, and then people like David Godman, who was a you know, biographer of Ramana and Papaji and so on, say, he didn't establish a lineage. These people who say they're in his lineage are just kind of making that up. So I don't know if um, one I can... Think... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to uh, interrupt you. That's personal. Mm -hmm. David Godman doesn't know what's going on in the heart of someone else. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know whether Ramana has or has not. He never met Ramana in his life. And uh, Papaji seems to have a lineage. I mean, if you look down the line, there's a lot of people who, you know. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, I don't know that we can say that for other people. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not... I'm not attempting to say that Godman's right or wrong. What I'm attempting to say is that it's an intimate, interior kind of experience that I don't think one can guess for another person. Yeah. One thing I like about the way you teach and write is that um, you're very reluctant to say you know anything with any sort of adamant certainty. <laughs> you know, people will ask you a question like, what, <laughs> well, is, sure. what is reality? You'll say, I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. Reality is a very deep topic. We we would have to just dig in for months on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Incidentally, you've mentioned your master a couple of times. Um, Why don't you tell us who he is or was? Is he still alive? No, he he passed away in 2011. Mm -hmm. And he was a really, really simple, simple man. I mean... And he was about, uh, he was almost six foot tall and he weighed about 115 pounds. Wow. He was sick, yeah, he was sick all of his life in his stomach. Mm. And he was of the Bodhisattva line. He would not say so. But uh, his, um, his guru told him to always keep his uh, awareness uh, to benefit humanity with a certain mantra to do so. Mm-hmm. And he did that for 50 years. Mm. So that's what he was about. I mean, very quiet and very, very uh, delicate kind of human being, almost like he wasn't present, you know, not in the physical there. Mm-hmm. So very when, sweet, very wonderful. When you say he was in the Bodhisattva Go line and, and he did that, you're implying that had he chosen to or had his master not told him to sort of con- stay connected with the world, benefit humanity, he would have just sort of ascended or just been off in a cave or something and not really interacted with people very much? Is that what you're saying? He was like that anyhow. But what I mean by Bodhisattva is his his world, his life was to 
pray for the enlightenment of all beings. Mm -hmm. That's what it was about. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what he did. And uh, he just followed his master's um, directive. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're talking of gurus and masters. Uh, At one point you say in your book, 99% of people need a guru. 90% 90% of people think that they are among the 1% who don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel that's true. But the statement about um, uh, when you're mature enough, when you're ready, that will happen. I, I feel that that's a very, very good uh, guideline. Mm-hmm. So if somebody feels they don't need that, how could they get it if they didn't, if they were resisting it anyhow? Nothing come to them. Like, Water the ducks back, right? Yeah. But I again feel this is a very intimate story, and and everybody is going to everyone is going to transcend this world eventually, and how they transcend this world is again a very intimate story. And some people maybe they will never ever ever really need a guru. Mm-hmm. Pretty unusual. If that would be true. If they never needed one, yeah. Yeah. Just this morning I was listening to a recording that, in which you were saying that you felt like you were transcending or leaving this world. And um, I, I think what you meant was, you know, you'd pretty much done it. you pretty much gleaned whatever this planet had to offer you in terms of spiritual opportunities and that you probably would be moving elsewhere uh, after this. Um, I'd like you to elaborate on that, but... um, Go ahead. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. You don't know, right? I I feel like that. Yeah, Yeah. I feel like that. And I don't feel like it's a level or an accomplishment or or anything special. I just feel like... um, yeah, maybe, uh, and maybe I'll take a thousand, thousand more lifetimes. But uh, my sense is, um, regardless of how long time takes, uh, I'm headed out, aren't you? Yeah, I was. I once saw a, a YouTube video of, uh, of some yogi in India, and he spoke good English, and he, and he was asked about reincarnation, and he he said, he said I really don't care. He said, whatever God wants, you know, I'll come back any number of times. Exactly. If, if I can be of service, I'll, what, I'll do whatever. And if I, if I can be of service elsewhere or nowhere or whatever, I'm, it's just in God's hands. I agree. And I imagine that I say that sometimes because I feel so not repulsed, but neutrally unattracted to what goes on on the planet, mm-hmm. you know. The politics have come up lately that that, that coffee a little bit, you know. Yeah. But nature, to sit with nature really feels like I am whoever I am or whatever I am has already departed from this planet. Mm. You're being without the three gunas. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't say anything about it except for... You know, it feels like when you're going out a door and the door is almost closed. Yeah. Uh, I can't say any kind of accomplishment or any kind of thing that, you know, is special at all. Just like, uh uh-huh, 
Well, you often quote the Bible, you know, um, be in the world but not of it. Yeah, I like that one yeah. very much. Huh? I think it's a Bodhisattva creed mm -hmm. because Bodhisattvas are on the planet as well. Sure. You know, and I would suspect, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I would suspect that you're motivated out of compassion. I, I was getting into a little bit of a debate with somebody about climate change the other day. And, you know, he said, well, why do you care about it? And I said, well, because the implications of it are that hundreds of millions of people could suffer. He said, I, I, I really don't care about sports. I don't care about celebrities, the things that people put a lot of attention on. But there are certain things, you know, like that, like climate change and other such issues that actually are important because they have serious implications for human suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think humans suffer the moment they're born, you know, and, and, and my feeling, or my sense is, I don't think it's a feeling so much, but my sense is, is that that which is in control of all things just by being is always in control of all things just by being, and if we take care of ourselves really well, mm -hmm. kind to each other, compassionate with each other, respecting each other, respecting ourselves, you've probably heard me say this on the transmission many times, then everything takes care of itself around us. So my view is, uh, at least today, that um, when, we, when we will change ourselves, I think Gandhi said the same, when we will change, our, change ourselves, the world will change. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to be able to change it until human beings actually change their consciousness. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. There's, that, there's another saying, I think this one's from the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah it's full of really beautiful, beautiful um, guidance. Yeah. Just to loop back for a moment to the point about gurus and teachers. You know, there are a lot of spiritual teachers out there these days, and sometimes people get with a teacher and kind of stick with that teacher, and other times they kind of hopscotch from one teacher to the next. And maybe that's a good thing, because maybe certain teachers can't take them as far as they need to go. It's kind of like you're, if you travel from India, sure. India to, to Cleveland or something, you're probably going to go on several planes in order to get there, and you can't just take the That's, 747 from New Delhi all the way to Cleveland. <laughs> so uh, what are your yeah. comments on that whole thought? Uh, again, I feel that it's an intimate, intimate relationship one has with one's own heart and soul, so to speak. And they will do what they will do. And they will, they will acquire and discover what they acquire and discover. I would prefer that my students would not go elsewhere. But... Uh, if you do, then it's, it's as you say, sometimes uh, people will actually go elsewhere and maybe it's that we just did not have that resonance deep enough where the person felt that they were moving along well, you know, or they, they had some arrogance or they were resistant or they didn't want to or whatever, but you know what, wherever they go, May they be blessed and find their way perfectly mm. in every way, shape, and form. Huh? And that's what I would wish for them in the deepest recesses of my heart, is that it really works out for them. Mm -hmm. Good. One thing that comes up a number of times in your book is that spiritual enlightenment is not an end to anything. You say, from my estimation, it is hardly a beginning. 
And um, here's, <laughs> here's a bit more that you said. You said, there is no end to this discovery. There's a Buddhist term, enlightening being. We do not become enlightened. We are actively enlightening. It is better to avoid the term enlightened, finished. It is likely that you will not cease to explore and discover. You are never finished. And then you quote that, uh, that, that sutra, uh, gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha, which you translate as go, go, go beyond. Go beyond the highest of the very highest, beyond enlightenment. Go all the way and beyond. Mm. So let, let's talk for a bit about mm -hmm. this, this notion of whether there's an end point and we're, we see it looming on the horizon or whether there's always going to be a next horizon. Mm, that's the way you put it is very interesting because I'm not sure that it's out in front of us. I'm not sure that it's a signpost. And I'm not sure that there's levels or even a continuance. It's just this idea of arrival that seems to me to be off. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. It's not, yeah, it's not really like we're going down a road and we get brighter and brighter and brighter, lighter and lighter and lighter and clearer and clearer. Although that may, that may apply. It's more of, um, there's not a, a stopping point. Like in, you know, like in the beginning, in the beginning, there was no beginning. There is no end. These are ideas that are, that are um, confined to the planet and to language. And as soon as we get over this language and confined to the planet ideas, we kind of lay them aside. And I would just say that the, the notion that I'm finished, well, I, I can imagine it's incredibly premature most of the time. So. <laughs> yeah. And yet there's something about the nature of awakenings, or some, some awakenings anyway, that gives one the feeling that this is it. And I've heard a number of teachers speak about this, such as, again, Adyashanti. He, he says that there's something intoxicating about certain qualities of certain awakenings that make you feel like, what more could there be? I'm done. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but the, then this, we're, we're again confined to the idea, and we have to be confined, but there, let me back up. We're confined to the idea of language and feelings and um, and pronouncements. And I would say that none of that applies, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that none of it applies. I've never felt intoxicated myself. That may have been the wrong <laughs> word, but... Because that implies drunk, no, drunken or something, but I meant sort of a, a, a deep sense of com resolution or completeness or coming home or some sort of quality of finality that some, some seems to be characteristic of some awakenings. I don't mean to slither and slide, but I can't imagine any any point that says it's there's something greater or lesser or done or uh, finished or this must be it that's that's a very uh, it this must be it that kind of idea no matter what word it's put into is very objective mm -hmm. this must be it <laughs> huh. yeah 
I have a, I have a strong, strong draw to old masters, really, really, really ancient masters, mm -hmm. and pretty much it's where I stay. And they never ever go to these places. They just never go to. They rarely talk about enlightenment. Mm -hmm. They rarely, they just um, point to the actuality of the situation. You know, when you're, when you will drop your thoughts, you've heard me say this many times on the transmission, you will learn to just put them aside, drop everything, release, release, release every idea you ever had. Anything that begins to measure you or confine you, just let it go by and, um, yeah, well, you have to see what that means, mm. or not. Am I being difficult? No, no, uh, you're being thought-provoking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't mean to be difficult, and I no, don't mean no. to be evasive. I don't think you're in the least uh, bit evasive no. or difficult. Okay. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I, I suppose it could look, look like, oh my gosh, you know, like, uh, can you answer a straight question? No, no. But I, uh, that... It's very Zen-like in a way, you know what I mean? Because I'm asking kinds of questions that would tempt one to get into a very rational, linear box, you know? And, and the topic that we're talking about doesn't fit in such a box. So I think your answers are perfect. No. Yeah, and and whether they are or not, I just don't want to evade for you, and I don't want to, I don't want to like uh, avoid nope. anything. I really, really feel that when you learn to observe your thoughts, you learn to pass them by. There's something incredible, and see, this is even this is even very shifty conversation right here. Something very incredible, very subtle is revealed and people do find out they find out oh my god i have made this i have created this craziness around me these opinions on me this this measurement of myself i have created all of this with my thoughts and to just drop little by little do you think that ramana ever thought a thing Alpaji never did so you know just Drop the thoughts, drop it and drop it, and learn how to do that, and learn how to be free and open in um, the cosmic mind, which, in my view, there's only a cosmic mind. In my view, there's no such thing as a personal mind. I always get a big kick out of this. Your mind is your enemy. I don't have an enemy called mind. Uh, I create these ideas, and I am confined by them. And uh, so I learned very well to not be confined by them. And uh, beyond that, language is very shifty. That's why when you say, you know, I don't know anything, you are so spot on, <laughs> really and truly. Yeah, I mean, language is very shifty. And, and you know, even now as I formulate questions in my mind, I, I keep thinking, well, that's too limiting, you know, but it's, it's something in the nature of <laughs> something in the nature of words and language that, you know, continually leads us into those little cul-de-sacs. Um, so, and, and, and so important are those words. So important are they at, at, at the very same time. Look at the volumes. Uh, you uh -huh. look at the volumes of libraries of Buddhist texts 
text, of Hindu text, of Christian text, of Muslim text, of the Sufis, you know, I mean, these words must be, I'm getting cold chills really. It's just really touching me because these words are very important. We just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But on, on the other hand, I'm very careful to not uh, create an idea in people to where they, because people are very um, self-defacing, self-doubting, and they will, oh, then why am I not having this? And what's wrong with me? Drop those ideas and just sit on the cliff or go sit next to a river or just, just watch a cloud pass by and you will have, I cannot say. Yeah, you know, I was up at the gym yesterday and I was talking to a friend whom I've known for decades and he's been kind of a spiritual seeker for decades and he was all grumbly. He was saying, you know, I've been doing this and doing that and all this meditating and I've signed up for all these online courses with this person and that person. And he said, I, you know, I'm just frustrated and I'm sick of it. And I said, well, are you, are you actually expecting to reach some kind of glorious, big, explosive aha moment or... Or you know, don't you recognize that? I mean, over all these years, there's just been a kind of a steady maturation and clarification and deeper understanding and all that, and that that's just going to go on forever. You know, if you're if you're expecting to reach some big bang moment, you're you're probably always going to be frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Can I give you another view on that, Rick? It's sure. a very very interesting thing what you say. One time I was out on the Sinai Desert with some people and one woman said, I have been meditating forever and I've just never been not in love. And I said, well, you're making a deal, aren't you? Uh, Shantimai, say that again. Your voice broke up just for a second during that important part. So what, what, did the, okay. what did the woman say? She said, I'm not enlightened and I've been doing this forever. Uh -huh. And I said, but you're making a deal, aren't you? You will do this if you get that. I said, the joy, the beauty of, it, of meditation is to meditate. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. So you're not going to get anything out of it. You're not putting a dollar down and getting a, an item. <laughs> you're there because, yeah, exactly. You're there because you love to sit in silence. What more do you want? You think all of this stuff is going to produce something? It's not. It's already within you. You are what you are looking for. You are what you're seeking. So what kind of a deal can you make with the practice? The practice is to emerge this from you because you love to practice, not because you are arduously getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning and having an hour of meditation. And then afterwards, something's going to come. Because you love to meditate. There's no deal here. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's intrinsically gratifying and, you know, edifying. Exactly. Yeah. But, but, but Rick, what if, what if you are doing that to get something else? It's not gratifying. You know, it's a struggle. It's like your friend. I've done this all my life and I'm not getting anywhere. Well, of course you're. You don't have to get anywhere. Go inside your heart and see who you are. Well, in your book, you quote a great Zen master having said, 100% relaxation is 100% enlightenment. And, there you go. And uh, when you say 
what if it's a struggle? I would say if it's a struggle, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> there, there's too much inception of individual effort, perhaps. You know, that's a very good topic, too. Light and Spot song. I was talking to a woman because I felt that if she had just the experience of gratitude, it would be very, very good for her. So I've been encouraging her to have the sense of gratitude because she feels entitled and nothing is, and that's fine. Okay, but that's that's where we're at. So she says, I think I did it wrong. I said, you cannot do it wrong. It's, it's impossible to do it wrong. Mm. If you, you know, it's impossible. You can't do anything wrong. But I've heard descriptions of meditation in some circles as saying, okay, you have to sit there, you have to clench your teeth, and you have to absolutely force any thought from not, you know, preventing the thought from coming into your mind. And I think, God, if I tried to do that, my head would explode. Um, so this, <laughs> my head explodes just hearing. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so what do you do with that? That's where... I don't know. I don't know what kind of personality wants to go for that kind of a um, arduous, difficult. Huh? Hmm. You know what? You know what I like a lot. I like in Taoism. They really go for to have the experience of kindness, to have the experience of, of compassion, to have the experience of generosity, to have the experience of dignity. Because there, you discover what's already within you, that the, you have these qualities, you know, that you don't have to work out here for them and bring them into you. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because often, oftentimes I think people talk about cultivating this. Well, maybe that's the correct term, but... You're inborn as an enlightened soul. Mary Magdalene said in the Gospel of Magdalena, she said, and forgetfulness is only temporary. That's nice. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people say when they do have some profound awakening, hey, I've always known this. It was always like this. I somehow just temporarily forgot. In fact, it says that at the very end of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna says, I've regained my memory. Yeah, yeah. Arjuna had worked on it a little further, though. He didn't, he, do you know that? That he did not wake up. Uh-huh. I'm glad he received his memory, because he did not wake up in all of that. In, in the course of the Gita, he didn't wake up? No. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, he went to hell to visit his relatives. Well, yeah, there's a whole story about that, which we probably don't need to go into. It, it was a very temporary visit, because he, he, he went to heaven, and he saw Duryodhana there, and he said, what's he doing here? And he said, I want to be with my relatives, and they were in hell. So he said, I'll go there then. And uh, so he went there, but it turned out Duryodhana had a little bit of heavenly karma to work off, and the Pandavas had a little bit of hellish karma to work off, and after that, they swapped places, according to the story. I love what you just said. That's beautiful. You know it well. Very well. Very good. Very good. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the thing is, you know what I feel? What I feel a very powerful uh, possibility exists when one ceases to doubt that all is totality and its undividable essence and there could not possibly be anything 
without that. When when you when you will go um, there, language is so slippery. When you will go there and cease to doubt that the essence of you is the essence of God, is the essence of nature, is the essence of the stars, is the essence of what is beyond anything that we can comprehend and all that we can comprehend and hold to that and that only. I feel that that is like a shovel of discovery, really. It just like digs in and digs in. Yeah, I like that theme and, and you often bring it up and you talk about wonder, which I also like. It's, to, the, to me, that's related to what you just said. I don't want to get too wordy here because I want you to do most of the talking, but I just want to add something which, as I was listening to your talks, I, it reminded me of something that I think about often, which is that, you know, these days science has told us so much about the way the world works, and if we just sit and ponder a blade of grass and consider what science has told about us about it, about how many cells there are in it and how each of those cells is so such a fantastic, marvelous, intricate little thing, and then consider the intelligence which could fabricate such a thing and which could orchestrate it and not only that blade of grass but the whole universe simultaneously it puts you in a state of awe right away it does yeah and some of the great old old masters would say that when you are in a state of awe and wonder you've had you've had uh, an experience of an enlightened mind and heart mm. Mm. yeah because there's nothing you can say there's nothing that you can figure you know, it's like you say, you take all of these elements and look into it, and all of a sudden, even those elements are gone, but they, they're like a stairway into that discovery. And you're just like, without a word, without an explanation, without, it's like the total release, you know? It's like what I'm talking about, release, 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 release. And the importance of words, because you brought, you brought first off, in this grass story, the elements of its molecules and its cells and its intelligence, and that brings a sense of wonder. And a sense of wonder brings, well, it brings the experience of what it is to be free of any definition whatsoever. Yeah. There's a beautiful quote from Einstein, which I can't do verbatim and which I don't have in front of me, but he talks about how you know, if we're not in a continual state of wonder, then we're considering what's actually going on in front of our very eyes, then we're as good as dead. Okay, yeah, yeah. Einstein was good for that, huh? <laughs> yeah. He made, he made some beautiful, beautiful quotes. Mm. And uh, I think it was his experience that he was talking about. Yeah, what? You know, that happens to me a lot. I'm just like, oh. I say to people, how in God's name or any name did this, how did any of this happen? Yeah. And oftentimes they don't get it. They just look at me like, are you crazy? Okay, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a tendency to take things for granted, I suppose, and to become acclimated oh, to yeah. things. But if we pause for a moment and, and contemplate what it actually is that we behold before us and within us and as the totality of all this this it's like as we've just been saying it's mind-boggling and I don't know you can kind of remind yourself of that more and more often and it begins to become a constant condition of just sort of inspiration and awe at the at the, the kind of the miracle that we're participating in
Yeah, and oftentimes people don't see it. And I'm I'm always often surprised that people just that little bit of click yeah. doesn't occur because um, again. Rick, I have the experience a lot in spiritual circles, and I, I feel that spiritually ignited people are very sincere and really, really uh, deeply considered and, and, and profoundly looking and still refuse to let go of some of those uh, notions that, oh, you know, I don't know, I don't get it. Oh. Like that, I, I wonder about that. What do you think? Well, I think on the one hand, I, I prefer to err on the side of considering myself less enlightened than I may actually be, rather than more. I think it's a, it's a safe way to go about it. So you know, maybe they're just being sort of humble, and it's like you know, com, <laughs> in contrast to to the depth and clarity of realization that's possible. Maybe they're just saying that you know, I'm a I'm a good beginner, but I've, I've got a ways to go. But on the other hand, I think you can sort of, you know, undercut yourself with un exactly. un unnecessary doubts. Exactly. And, and that when you are in that state of wonder that you're speaking about, Rick, when you're in that state of wonder, um, doesn't it reveal to you that uh, when you are free of thought, and definition and necessity to analyze that um, I don't know you know people are afraid to disappear in that this is what I see what do you think how do you see that um, I don't know I tend to probably be an over analytical person and to think a bit too much but um I also feel like, you know, that thing I was saying before about the blade of grass and the intelligence that is permeating and orchestrating everything. You know, if, if we could really fathom that in its totality, as it fathoms itself to that degree, as it appreciates itself to that degree, it would be kind of like that situation in the ninth, in the 11th chapter of the Gita where Lord Krishna shows Arjuna his form and it's like, holy mackerel, <laughs> take this I, away, it's too much. <laughs> I love that spot. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I speak about it a lot. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> but what about that blade of grass you were speaking about? Is, this is... I suppose when you are spiritually um, prepared then you'll have really to give up a lot you'll have to give up self-defacing you have to give up the fear of anything which is really wonderful huh? mm -hmm. you have to give up um, resistance to your heart and soul I say your heart and soul because there's something that uh, here we go with language. There's something that um, emerges in a very um, overwhelming manner, in a very subtle way, isn't it? Like when you see a baby being born, or you see the sun come up in the morning. There's a subtlety, right? But it's like, oh, and we don't, we yeah, we don't want to fear anything ever, you know. And 
We don't want to lie about it either. So that's why I always say take it li little bit, step by step, step by step. But know that you're going into a fearlessness. You're living on the edge of the unknown all the time. Mm. There's no such security. Get it straight here, you know. <laughs> there, these are all ideas that contain you and uh, they don't they don't benefit you any way shape or form mm. so my view is that spiritually ignited people really have uh, to give up uh, all sense of all sense of fear and uh, frustration little by little by little and title and identity and yes and no's and resistance and like that like you said the zen master says just relax mm. just relax i think there's a balance to be found we've all seen egregious examples of people who got really full of themselves and thought that they were just the god's gift to humanity and that they were perfect and beyond reproach and could do anything and you know were untouched by the karma because they were so high and mighty and blah 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 we've you know there are all kinds of crazy examples and we've also yes. and we've also seen people who are like oh i'm such a poor schmuck i'll never get anywhere i'm no good blah blah you know and just indulging at that end of the spectrum i, I think there's some kind of a balance to be found uh, be, that that mixes together some nice qualities of confidence but humility you know and wisdom but at the same time realizing you really don't know anything compared to <laughs> i mean anything for certain there's there's somehow it's a paradoxical thing that you you learn to embrace right but yes absolutely and i feel that well let's just speak about one thing being wrong people are fearful of being wrong so this is one of those little tiny fears that you can let loose of, but they are, it's really, really a, it's a leap to the moon. Because who cares if you're wrong or right? Yeah. I mean, to be wrong is also to be right, because you have to turn around to be um, aware of what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. Anyhow, these, to me, I don't know if we're going off topic or not, but to me, these are very important spiritual um, willingnesses, mm -hmm. is to lay down anything that encumbers you, you know? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I'm never wrong, right, Irene? Uh, I'm never oh, wrong, am I? Nice to see Irene. <laughs> she's sitting over here. Oh, she's in her bathrobe. She wouldn't want to get it. Later, you can see her. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, uh, she was saying that willingness to admit you're wrong. I just said, I'm never wrong, right? Uh, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say that if you want to go north and, and somebody's telling you, okay, but you're heading south, you'd be okay with that. You would turn around without question and say, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is that just that we clear away these encumbrances of ideas that we have about ourselves. Yeah, you told a story in one of your talks about this Zen master who was confronted by somebody in the audience and they said, you're wrong about that. And he said, oh, okay. And he went off and learned what he had to learn, you know. Yeah. He, 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 you want to tell that story? Yeah, it goes that something uh, it was about a Chan, Chan man. And uh, he said something that negated 
actuality and he defines something and I don't remember what it was, but he defines something. Maybe he said, enlightenment is like this. And then a, a man in the, in the assembly stood up and he says, you're wrong. And so the master went to him and he said, Chan man, tell me where I'm wrong. I want to know. Mm -hmm. And he's, see how, how wonderful that is? Yeah, rather I mean, than being just defensive that really, about it. Or, yeah. Absolutely. So the Chan man says, you go sit. And you sit for, until you find out for yourself. And he did, and he found out for himself that he made an error in definition. You see, and he was—he never did that again for for mm. people. So, I really here's one more. Can I sure? One more? Of course. But I'm conditioned. No, you're not conditioned. It's you're not conditioned. Don't don't say you're conditioned. It's it's so that you've learned things and you've learned them well, but. Be careful not to make excuses. I was just going to say, well, you aren't conditioned, but there is conditioning. And the conditioning can tend to kind of hide the you, you know, that isn't conditioned. And so there, there does need to be some unraveling of that, um, right? Right, but the, the more the excuses that you make, the more compounded that idea becomes. And if you, yeah, I have learned, you know, but I'm not, I cannot be conditioned. It's impossible to condition me. Mm. Huh? That which I'm seeking within myself is beyond any idea of conditioning. Right. So I just drop that notion away. And even though I've learned something very, strongly. I've learned that my name is Shantimai, that my name was Mary Holland at one time, huh? Long time ago. And if anybody says Shantimai, turn around like that. That's what we're talking about conditioning. And that's a useful but conditioning. To, it yeah. is a use. Exactly. There we go again. Yeah. Uh, there's so much usefulness, but when we compound on top of ourselves fears and concern about always being right and I'm conditioned and I'm not capable. Those are those are ideas that don't benefit you at all and they're not true. Yeah. Well it's like it's useful to be conditioned in the sense of knowing how to drive a car. <clears throat> and uh, my wife had a fender bender at a certain intersection here in town some years ago and every time we get to that intersection it's like oh, be careful this intersection scares me you know but there's nothing more sure. dangerous about that intersection than any other but there's some impression that was made at that intersection you know and so I guess no, I get that yeah but, but let's go to meditation again what do we do in meditation we breathe and we just observe mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we sit in stillness why? So that all of those ideas that we have can be laid to rest for a moment, mm. Mm? so that we can see beyond them. And that's all I'm saying, yeah. is that we perhaps have to give up some ideas about ourselves that are not very beneficial. Sure. Did you ever hear the story about the, the line in stone, the line in sand, the line in air, that whole thing? 
Uh, I'll tell you. No, I'll, I'd love to. I'm opening myself up for criticism. People always say, why don't you just shut up and let the person talk? But anyway, I'm going to tell you this because <laughs> I think you'll find You're it. You're having a conversation. Yeah, you'll find it. You're having a conversation. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, a, it's one of those Vedic stories about... Impression, it's about impressions and conditioning that if you make a line in stone, it's, it's hard to make, but if you make it, it stays there a long time. Uh, if you make a line in sand, it's easier to make uh, and it doesn't stay there as long. If you make a line in water, it's even easier to make and it stays there even less long. If you make a line in air, it's very easy to make and it disappears the minute you make it. So um, it's said to be that way with, with conditioning, that if, if our nervous system is such that it's like stone, then you know we 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 new impressions that we accumulate are etched in it and and kind of last and last and last and you know we want the the nervous system and the whole me- the whole makeup to be more and more and more and more air like in the sense that we can experience very deeply and profoundly without limitation and yet the impression is gone the minute it, it's experienced yeah, that's really good. That's like Ramakrishna's point. Hey, we're having a conversation. I wouldn't want the whole conversation resting on my shoulders, I'll tell you. I'm glad you're on the other side. Okay. It's like Ramakrishna said, um, a line drawn on water. This is very good, huh? It's like a line drawn on water. It's there, but it's, it's gone. Yeah. And, and oftentimes I talk about that, too, that limitations are very important like you say huh some limitations are very important you will not do this to me i, I will not permit it right mm-hmm. this is my line but as you say it, if it's if it's drawn in air then that line can be drawn anywhere at any time that it's useful and not uh in cement like when it's not useful yeah, and the metaphor isn't meant to, to imply that we are just permissive and, oh, whatever happens, I'll just be open to it. You know, we de- so I'm glad you <laughs> followed up with that point. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't do that. No, no. It's, it's a very fine line. You know, in the Vedas it says, the pathway or the road to enlightenment is narrow and it's difficult to walk as a razor's edge. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's true. I feel that it's really, really, really... That's a constant. Um, it's a constant release. I would say that release, 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 and then it's just like we were just saying. On the other hand, you can't release everything because you cannot let somebody treat you like a doormat. It's just such a fine and beautiful, beautiful skill to navigate your way through life to realize the depths of your beauty, your intrinsic intelligence, your dignity, a wide open mind, a wide open heart. It's just the most exquisite walk. Yeah. You know, the Gita comes to our aid again here. At one point in the story, Arjuna sits down in the chariot and says, I give up. I don't care what happens. I'd rather live on alms in this world than fight this battle. I don't want to take any sort of action. And Krishna says, no, you have to take action. But first you have to sort of be established in yoga. You know, verse, what is it? Chapter 2, verse 48. Um, yoga Karmani. Be established in yoga, then perform action. Because then you're going to do it without attachment and without... Well, without the sort of individual narrowness that 
all that results in mistakes rather than you're going to be operating from kind of, you were saying earlier there's only cosmic mind not individual right, mind right. You, you're going to be operating from cosmic mind and then whatever happens will turn out you know will be done in the proper manner right right and will be done just because it's done isn't mm -hmm. it uh-huh yeah 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 i love that well though i feel that my observation could be wrong, could be right, but it's the way I see it, is that there is only one mind, and that's the same mind, right, that is turning the seasons, right? Mm -hmm. That is, um, has brought all this into being. There is intimate and personal experience of that. So that's where we think that we have, we have a personal mind. But nobody has ever found mine. Right? Yeah. Right. I, I don't know what mind is. I have no idea what mind is. When you said that the first time about half an hour ago, I was thinking, well, yeah, there's only one ocean, but then we see there these waves on the ocean. And of course, the waves, the waves are nothing but ocean, but you can still define this wave and you can distinguish it from that wave. Absolutely. So you have a personal experience of the, of the cosmic mind, but you don't have... Bodhidharma. I remember one story about Bodhidharma. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, one, I think it was Emperor Wu went to Bodhidharma and he said, oh, Bodhidharma, please appease my mind. And Bodhidharma said, uh, well, bring me your mind. <laughs> and he said, ah, it's impossible. I don't know where it's at. And he said, I've appeased your mind. <laughs> so <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, oftentimes in spirituality, I like to bring this up, particularly in an interview, that uh, people will say that your mind is your enemy or that you have to do something with your mind. I, I don't know what that means. I say that uh, the way you think creates enemies. There's nothing that you can do with mind at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as I don't, I haven't found mind either, and, 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 you know, there are people who can define it much better than I, but I just simply understand it as a faculty, like many, like our other faculties. You know, we have, we have arms and legs and senses and, and this and that, and um, that whole thing that Christ said about if your eye offends thee, pluck it out or something, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what he was referring to, but <laughs> um, it seems to me that all, being at war with any of our faculties is, is, self-defeating and that we just sort of need to exactly. learn to harmonize them all and and well you know there's the whole master servant thing here i mean if if we try to make something a master which is really meant to be a servant then we get into trouble but um if everything is properly apportioned and placed and with and prioritized in our ex experiential matrix then everything functions harmoniously perfectly as it is anyhow. Yeah. Right? Good point. Yeah, as it is anyhow. This yeah. is perfect, that is perfect. From the perfect springs of perfect. Take the perfect from the perfect and only the perfect remains. Yeah. I, I was telling in satsang yesterday that this is not a convenient term that when you like feel very spiritual and, and high and bright and open. This is, a, this is a statement that the rishis made for every moment of every day. You know, whether you feel 
like Washington's gone to hell in a handbasket or, <laughs> you know, whatever it could be. This totality is total and perfect as it is. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I don't know if you know who Timothy Conway is. He's, he's a friend of mine that I've interviewed a couple of times. But he has this really nice article in which he addresses this point. And he says, there's three levels of consideration. Okay, there's the, the superficial level, uh, or the most obvious surface level, in which there are problems. You know, people are starving, and there's this problem. That, and you have to deal with that stuff. You can't just say, oh, it's all perfect. But, that, but then there is, you know, a more kind of divine level of consideration, in which everything is perfect. How could it be otherwise? All is well and wisely put. And then there's, you could say, even even more fundamental level in which nothing's ever happened <laughs> to begin with. And, and if you try to take a fixed stand in any one of these three levels, and, um, according to this model, it's lopsided. You don't really take, you don't embrace the whole, the totality. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, try it. Try taking a fixed stand in one of those levels and see what, what happens. I, I feel that uh, I would take a fixed stand and this is perfect, that is perfect, from the perfect springs of perfect, take the perfect from the perfect, and only the perfect remains. And that would include everything, all three, all yeah. three as well. As long as we interpret it properly and don't jump to conclusions. Like if we say, okay, everything is perfect and therefore we don't need to feed the, the starving children or something, then, you know, maybe we're not really... We're interpreting that verse the way the Rishis stated it. It's very good what you say, but maybe it's three three different levels of. Um, I don't like the word level. Maybe it's three different um, uh, perspectives. Views, yeah, uh, and and positions, so to speak, ways of living. Because I, I feel that at some point um, you won't do anything for or against the earth at all. You just be ready to um, let it all take take um, take its own uh, course and and uh, work it out. It will. It mm. will work. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm totally not against uh, Mother Teresa or um, those people who have really given themselves for others. I don't think that that's wrong. I'm not... Uh, um, evaluating anything. I'm just saying that uh, there's something, well, something is, again, language is very difficult. There is uh, a quality or a an intelligence that is truly governing everything, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be the person who feeds that would be the person who does not feed. That would be the bodhisattva. That would be the the violent person. It would be everything. Huh? Yeah. No, I agree. And yeah. I think it's kind of a matter of dharma, also. You know, like where you're really meant to serve and and what your situation is. Um, you know, the world is obviously. God loves variety. <laughs> look at look at the world. Look at the universe. Look at the Amazon rainforest, and you know there's we we all have our our different streams of of destiny to to fulfill. Absolutely. Yeah. So those streams of destiny would prove out that uh, perfect is a is a is a slippery little term, mm. but everything is total as it is, and 
Mm? Yeah. Well, the verse you quoted is actually purna, which means full also. And maybe perfect is another translation, but um, every, this is full, that is full. Taking, right. fu taking fullness from fullness, fullness remains. Um, right. So, and, and absolute, absolute, it also means absolute and complete. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, uh, this uh, translation that I give you is from uh, Swami Muktananda. Uh -huh. And uh, I always liked it because it's really, it's very confronting for people. And I really love confronting people. Yeah. I, 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 this is one of my favorite things to do because I feel that uh, spirituality should be very confronting because you're going to have to change your mind about something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to look at it in a different way, maybe. So that that's very confronting, is it not? Yeah. Speaking of confronting and speaking of Swami Muktananda, um, what you, and I don't know if you want to go there, but um, I've been pondering lately the sort of the correlation, I've been pondering this for a long time, the correlation between enlightenment and behavior, particularly ethics and morality and stuff like that, uh, which of course can be a very relative thing and can be determined by cultural mores and so on. But, um, you know, some people say there really is no correlation. You can be an absolute scoundrel, and I'm not implying that Muktananda was one, but, but you know, you can really be a, you know, an SOB and yet be enlightened. Others say, no, that's not enlightenment. That's some kind of half-baked condition. And if you're really enlightened, as we you know, would ideally like to use the term, then there, that's going to percolate into your behavior and there's going to, there are going to be qualities of saintliness. So have you given much thought to that whole conundrum? And Abs Absolutely. What, what do you, you think know, about it? I like the Zen masters when at one time it was agreed when, when a person went into a Zendo, it was agreed that and signed that they may die in that Zendo. They may die there. Uh, and the master would, at just the right moment, would whack, and that guy would go, oh, and everything would be gone. But it was a divine action to take advantage of anyone for any reason, for one's own aggrandizement, is not enlightenment. You wouldn't even want to. You may be stern about your direction. You may be, um, you may even ask somebody to go away because they... I mean, I have three people in the last 30 years because we don't do it right together. You know, there's somebody waiting for you who can do it right with you. But to take money, I take money because I, it's a livelihood. So it's not something we ask. Yeah, we're well, not we telling ask. people to give them your life, give you mm -hmm. their life savings or their grandmother's inheritance or something like that. You know, Never. Right. Never have I needed to ask anyone for money personally whatsoever. Yeah. I, not once. So that's my good fortune. I've never had to go there, right? But uh, to sexually um, exploit, to need somebody to aggrandize you as, oh, you are so great and you are so wonderful. I had some of that in my past, too. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I can't stay there long. And I would ask also the, the people who are listening, who maybe get caught in such a place, don't be there long either. Because you have a certain responsibility to that as well. Uh, um, even a really rotten teacher uh, is showing you how not to be. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. 
So, so it's not that you stay there. You'll have to let, you'll have to, uh, you have a responsibility to that, uh, that experience too. You have to go as quick as you can. And, uh, well, nobody can say what, uh, what a person needs to go through, but no, absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. They may be strange, they may be weird, they may be upside down, those enlightened souls, but they could not harm anyone. Yeah. Just last night, somebody sent me a quote from the Dalai Lama. It'll take me a minute to read, but I think it's worth reading here. Please. Um, he said, a teacher who behaves unethically or asks students to do so can be judged as lacking in ultimate insight, His Holiness said. As far as my own understanding goes, the two claims, this is Dalai Lama speaking, the two claims that you are not subject to precepts and you are free, these are the result of incorrect understanding. No behavior is free from consequences. For this reason, true wisdom always includes compassion, the understanding that all things and all beings are interconnected with and vulnerable to each other. Even though one's realization may be higher than the high beings, His Holiness said, one's behavior should conform to the human way of life. When teachers break the precepts, behaving in ways that are clearly damaging to themselves and others, students must face the situation, even though this can be challenging. Criticize openly, His Holiness declared. That is the only way. If there is incontrovertible evidence of wrongdoing, teachers should be confronted with it. They should be allowed to admit their wrongs, make amends, and undergo a rehabilitation process. If a teacher won't respond, students should publish the situation in a newspaper, not omitting the teacher's name, His Holiness said. The fact that the teacher may have done many other good things should not keep us silent. So anyway, that was the quote. No, 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 that's a perfect, perfect, perfect response. Yeah. Perfect response. You, you know, what, what would you do if you sent a sincere person away from their spiritual journey because they were so frightened or so... Um, uh, Disillusioned, abused. yeah. Exactly. You know, this is, you have a big responsibility. Somebody wrote to me recently and said, well, I don't care how they take it. In a way, I understand you don't care how they take what you say. I'm just free to say whatever I want. And I, I asked him, I said, shall I respond to you? And he said, if you want to. And I said, I didn't respond because I wanted him to want to. <laughs> I don't really want to. But he, that's exactly what I would have brought up to him. This, the Dharma seat is a responsibility. It's a privilege and a responsibility. And you'll have to, um, you'll have to take them both uh, to heart and be really fine to people. Huh? Yeah. As fine as you can possibly be. Hmm? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, anyhow. Yeah. Um, so I have a few more notes here, and we're about, um, you have to leave in about 15 minutes because you have a satsang tonight. I, 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 I want to make sure that we get in anything that is dear to your heart that you would like to talk about. Is, is there anything on your mind that um, we haven't brought up that you want to be sure to cover? Not at all, Rick, because uh, I don't know. I think I went off of topic a lot and covered just about everything. I just feel that... <laughs> I feel that uh, it's really important that people have confidence in themselves and uh, that is already inside of the person, whatever they discover inside, whatever they discover, like if they discover they are courageous or they, they do have confidence or 
there is a dignity within them or they do have a very you know uh, ability to be kind and compassionate that really what they're finding out is that those qualities are already there mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they can have a lot of faith in those those qualities in their life and uh, to watch and see how one thinks is of utmost importance because that's the uh, that's the bars to the prison right there. That's the world creator is how we think about things. Well, I would say that uh, breath is very important to getting um, a great stillness. Meditation is important, practice is of utmost importance but you practice because you love it and you practice because you see the results, not because you're wanting something way down the road and think that you're pulling that towards yourself. What you're seeking is always within you. Very important. Yeah, I would say that if you don't love it and if you don't see results, you're probably not going to stick with the practice. Um, That's right. Because <laughs> I've very rarely seen anybody stick with a practice that they can't, couldn't stand to do. <laughs> right. But there are, it is that there are some people who will trudge along and do it because they need the discipline. But as we said, you can't do anything actually totally wrong. You can only discover what's more beneficial and more at ease than any other way. I've seen people who really uh, get off very much on being a disciplinarian. Mm. It makes their... it begins to define them uh -huh. and uh, I think that maybe is dangerous too. I've only seen a few of those by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly in Germany. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to talk to you. I really really enjoy speaking with you. I, I wish we were speaking through like in your living room or in mine rather than the computer but I Oh, no, it's it's really uh, really a joy oh, to thanks. speak with. I enjoy it too, and perhaps we'll have a chance to do that. And by the way, before I forget, if you run into Prajna Paramita, say hi to her for me. I, I enjoyed speaking with oh, her yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah, she's a sweet. Yeah, for those listening, she was a student of uh, is a student of Shanti Mai, whom I interviewed about a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading a bio of you, maybe it was in your book. You said, or the bio said that you know you went and came to your teacher's ashram, and you were there about three years, and then after about three years, you realized the self, or however the terminology was. I don't remember exactly how it was phrased, but you sort of realized your true nature. And um, I'm just curious if if you could describe that shift, or if you could describe that experience. I know it's a tall order, to, but what, what, maybe take a shot at it. Sure. You know, my guru told me that, uh, I, I want to put this in. Okay, this is really important. I neither believe nor disbelieve anything. Mm -hmm. I've made that a very important and powerful uh, practice, and it's benefited me tremendously. So just to listen. And everything falls into its rightful place. You don't have to reject anything, you don't have to disbelieve anything, you don't have to accept anything, and you don't have to adhere to anything. Uh, just open your listening capacity. Okay, so I never believed nor disbelieved my guru. 
So he told me, he said that uh, I had lived uh, lifetimes as a yogi before. Okay. So I was in a, did you know that, that I had the Satori in a factory? No, I didn't. Yes, I did. And, and I was in uh, Eugene, Oregon, mm -hmm. and I was working at Diamond A um, canning factory, canned uh, summer food for the winter. And uh, I had on a hard hat and a yellow rubber suit and uh, blue rubber gloves and boots up to my knees. And they put me strangely in a place that I'd never been before. And it was a place where I was totally alone, way back in the back of the factory. And I just... I know it was an hour because I was at work. And I just disappeared. And I was told, I remember some words that I was told, but they were very few words. And it is, it was, um, what was it? It's like, all that you know is not so, and all that you know is so. Mm. But don't, you don't know. And uh, it just went, I just disappeared. I just disappeared and it was all like a like a deep blackness, like in like the, in the pupils of your eyes are the blackest of the black I've ever seen. And it was fearless and and uh, all these definitions really um, are attempting to describe what it would be like being in this the blackness of the pupils of your eyes. And what's just really interesting is an hour later, I'm just standing there. I don't think I ever moved for an hour. And I knew it was an hour because it was time to clock out. Mm. And I just took my, I took my uh, time card and I clocked out and I called a friend and I said, I want to talk to you. And he said, okay, so we went over for a coffee. And I said, I had an enlightened experience. And he said to me, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> That's funny. And I, yeah, and I thought he was sent from heaven because there was no need to defend. There was no need to offend. He couldn't push me over. I didn't have to hold anything up. And I just let it be. Hmm. And I thought, you are, you are sent from heaven. He told me later, I was always sorry for saying that. And I said, never. It was absolutely the most important thing that could have been said to me at that moment. Hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons I started this show. I was you know, meeting people around town here who had been meditating for decades and who were having these profound awakenings. And they would tell friends and the friends would say, are you crazy? You're just Joe Schmo. You know, you couldn't have had an awakening. You don't look, you don't glow in the dark. You know, you can't levitate or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I thought, I right. gotta, I gotta start hook, hooking these people together. Talk to these people who are having awakenings and let the people who are, you know, who don't think they've had one, see that their peers are having them, and I think it will have a good effect. So that, that was one of my initial motivations. Great, great. I thought it was one of the most important things that could have happened directly 
uh, akin to that situation, that experience that I had. Yeah. You know, somebody saying, thank you. <laughs> and so what has, really how have things matured since then, if you could describe your inner experience? Tremendously. Mm -hmm. Simpler, 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 simpler. Less, less involved, less involved, less involved, and sometimes caught. Yeah. Like, like the Washington story, definitely caught in that for a moment. But it's still, you know, that point I was telling you where you neither believe nor disbelieve still is a great service because it just keeps everything even. You just don't have to have anything for this and anything for that, but you watch and observing. Observing has become a way of life. But we get caught once in a while, mm -hmm. so okay. Yeah. Masagadat has said something like that too. Somebody asked him a similar question. He said, yeah, I, I get caught up once in a while, but it just lasts a moment. Yeah, oh, it's, it's transparent, easy, easy to be done with it. Because, because your heart is so, I, I like to speak about it in these terms, because your heart is so light and cannot carry anything. Mm -hmm. It's like putting a weight in space. You know, you, you can't encumber yourself with these things. So you learn not to do that anymore. Yeah. I thought of another question I want to squeak in before we run out of time. Great. In your book, you said that your master, Hans Raj Maharaji, has met Christ, Buddha, and, and many divine forms that he has had direct communication with. And the reason that I find that interesting is that I have this sort of ongoing debate with some friends about you know, their experiences that there seems to have been a total loss of a sense of personal self. And yet you keep hearing these stories of ascended masters and whatnot who seem to be hanging around in some way shape or form and interacting with people and so certainly if if total loss of a sense of self is a hallmark of a certain of a certain stage of development they would have had that and yet there still still seems to be some kind of entity which is functioning so i'm just curious about your thoughts on that yes yes what <laughs> i'm not gonna let you off that easy <laughs> Yes, that, you know, you, you actually walk in two worlds at once. Mm -hmm. And you just accept your experience as it is and not try to shove it away because you should look like this. You should look like that. This should be the way that you are. You are the way you are. And, and if you have those experiences, why would you hide them? I mean, I would also say, why would you bring them out? For myself, it would be... Mm. You know, but if he wanted to bring him out, and then... Well, <laughs> let me ask you, for instance, um, you said earlier that there's only cosmic, <laughs> cosmic mind, not, not individual mind. Do you have a sense of individual, individuality, of personal self, of, you know, somebody home? It's a really good question, because uh, it's a really good question. If somebody says, hey, Shanti Mai, this person turns around. If this if this body's hungry, it eats. If it puts its and hand on the stove, then then you know exactly. Yeah, you feel, the pain's felt there. I don't feel it over here in Iowa. Exactly, and yet, well, you have your own individual experience of the cosmic mind, mm -hmm. uh, like every blade of grass. But I ask myself after that experience and some and some long time in silence in India with my master. I said, how do, you know, because Maharaji said, you'll do this and you'll do that. And I, oh, okay. and, I, and I thought, how does a guru act? 
And I thought, wow, what a cage. Wow. Ooh, stay away from that one. So, you know, I don't, I just, for myself, I just report as much as I can to people that would help them. Mm -hmm. But I really don't know about being here or absent or any of that. I'm not quite sure. Hmm. That's good. That's a good answer. Yeah, I'm not really quite sure. I know that all through the day uh, something is occurring, but I, I'm not quite sure if there is an entity individual or not. Yeah. Somebody's hungry here. <laughs> I don't find Shantimai all that interesting. Hmm. And I, I don't uh, demean her. You know, the thing is, is that uh, I don't find myself very important. What I find important is the teachings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My sense is that just as, you know, like physics tells us that a body exists, but if we go deep enough, there's no body found. Uh, yeah, you know, there you go. That in the same sense, we could say there's a, there's a, a relative self, and, but if you go deep enough, sure, it has no ultimate reality, but it's just sort of one of those relative things that what is it that word in, in uh, Sanskrit is uh, mithya yeah, it's conditional reality it's right. you know there's that old saying of the pot it's there's really only clay there's no pot it's just clay and yet you have a pot and you can put beans in it or whatever it's there's a sort of a, rel oh, a relative function that's a beautiful way of saying it because uh, yeah I, I just I absolutely don't have an answer for that really yeah. not really mm -hmm. uh, except for my view is that you do live in two worlds at once. You live in the world of, uh, again, I would use the term release. Mm -hmm. All everything is released, and then you live in the world where, of particular. To me, they're not different. Mm -hmm. They're different, but they're not separate. Uh -huh. You understand? Yeah. There's a lot of difference, but I don't find any separation, and that's the only thing I can say about myself. Whatever that is. <laughs> In terms of, of um, a reality or a uh, dispensation of uh, anything. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good note to end on. Um, as P.T. Barnum said, always leave them wanting more. Oh, I love P.T. Barnum. This has been a circus. <laughs> it's our spiritual circus. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, you're, you're a really wonderful person, uh, even though you're not a person. And um, you know, it's a joy to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, don't let are it go you, to you. Are you Norwegian? No, I'm English, Irish, and Scottish by, you know, ancestry, although I was born in Connecticut. Okay. Why do you ask? Because you remind me of a Norwegian person. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Mm -hmm. Nope, yeah. not Norwegian. <laughs> although I like that song. Which one? Norwegian Wood. Oh, me too. Yeah, great Is song. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Let me just make some wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Shanti Mai, and I will be creating a page on batgap.com uh, linking to her websites. She's got two of them. Also to her book, which I 
um, about three quarters of the way through and really enjoyed. You know, I, I have a relatively small bookcase behind me here, and I don't keep all the books that I get, but there's certain books that I keep, and I'm going to keep this one because it's. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. Really nice. Long time. Yeah. Long time. <clears throat> books that I don't keep, I send out to a woman's prison in California. So. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And so, this is, as I mentioned in the beginning, as most of you know, this is an ongoing series of interviews. There have been lots of them so far, and there will be many more. Go to batgap.com, and there's a, a new menu we put up called At a Glance. And if you go there, it sort of summarizes everything that's on the site, so you can, you can check it out. Thanks for listening or watching, and uh, there will be another one in a week, and just about every week um, going forward. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome.